dialogue. Off you go. Great. Good evening. So tonight I'm going to be talking about hope as a way of knowing, having eyes to see hope as a way of knowing. And um, I'm doing it in part because I'm doing a PhD on the topic of the psychological experience of hope and um, wanting to share some of that with you and especially in light of Esther Meek's conference and thinking. So what is hope? Just have a think, give yourself 10 seconds. How would you define hope? You don't need to say it out loud. It's, it's actually quite difficult. When I do this and get lots of people in the audience to give, up, to give answers, there's this enormous variety because it's a really big construct as we use it. And I got interested in it because I've been working as a clinical psychologist for nearly 25 years. And obviously people come to see a psychologist when life is a struggle, they're going through difficulties. And I was really intrigued that some people um, were really hopeful in light of, of the same struggles that someone else might feel hopeless. And I thought, what makes the difference? What gives someone the experience of hope? And especially among Christians, in theory, they've all got the same hope, but some people actually experience it and some people don't. So what was going on? Uh, you might remember if you were here for Esther's um, talks or have read any of her books, Esther Meeks, um, she talks, she cites Polanyi, Michael Polanyi a lot, and he points out that any scientific endeavour, we'll, we'll call psychology a science for that um, purpose, starts with the passion of the investigator. So for me this was actually, it started about a decade ago, and it was a real passion, like what is hope? And um, so in a way this presentation is my answer to that question. And as I said, I'm also wanting to interact with Esther's view of knowing. And perhaps we could even see hope as a way of knowing. So what I had to do in um, trying to define hope, of course, I'm a psychologist, I go to the psychological literature, and what does every other psychologist use to define hope? And there's a questionnaire that is given, and almost every psychological journal or educational journal uses this model of hope and here it is. It's called the Adult Hope Scale by um, Ron Snyder and it's got two parts. So you're hopeful if you have been good at achieving goals in the past, that's agency, and if you can think of lots of ways to problem solve and achieve your goals in the future and that's it. <laughs> that is hope. So examples of the agency questions are I meet the goals I set for myself, I've been pretty successful in life, and the pathways question, there's lots of ways around a problem. I can think of many ways to get things important to me. Now, when I saw that, I was a bit horrified because lots of reasons. Um, many other psychologists are horrified too, but it's such a big rigmarole to create a whole new definition, come up with a questionnaire that not many people have done it, but that's what I've been doing. But what is problematic with it? What do you think? So for a start, it's utterly individualistic. You can't hope in anyone else. You can't hope in your surgeon. Like, what has your past goal success got to do with your hope in your surgeon? <laughs> you can't hope in God. Deeply problematic for any religion, not just Christians. There's nothing transcendent in it. Um, and Esther talked in her conference about the way in our society we privilege knowing when it's a fact. So she calls it the defective epistemic defaults, this idea that 
Um, knowledge is information, is fact that you can pin down and we think that's better knowledge. So science, for example, is the highest form of knowledge in our society. And you can see how this sort of fits with that. You can calculate how good you've been at achieving goals and how good you've been at problem solving. But it misses a lot. So Esther talked about a daisy of dichotomy. So in the middle of the daisy, you've got all this science, knowledge as fact, information is fact. And then in the petals, she's had, but what does that miss? So how, what about when we come to know things by our emotions, by faith, by embodied ways? There's all sorts of other ways. And this definition misses all of that. It, it's basically just goal attainment. In, and so surprise, surprise, if you read a journal article and it says, hope predicts academic success, you go, well, of course it does, because <laughs> you've been good at achieving your goals and you're good at problem solving, but that's not how most people think about hope. Um, so this was my challenge, was to come up with a better definition. Now, one has already been created. I think this is the best definition of hope in existence, really. This is Emily Dickinson's famous poem. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. It's a beautiful definition and it resonates with lots of Esther's ideas of knowing that hope comes and indwells us. It perches in the soul. It's not just a calculation. And it sings the tune without the words. Michael Polanyi is the philosopher on whom Esther based a lot of her thinking. And he's famous for a line that we know more than we can tell. We deep down know more than we can put into words. So he, hope sings the tune without the words. How many times do you hope for something and you can't quite pin down what you're hoping for, but you know it's building up within you. And sweetest in the gale is heard and saw must be the storm. It's in the storm and the chill, it's land and the strangest sea. It's bigger than just logic. There's hoping against hope, even in the worst of times. And it never asks a crumb of us. It's a gift of grace, hope. So, the problem is, could you use that in psychological research? <laughs> this would be really difficult to use. You could ask people, I guess, do they resonate with it? But um, it's not really going to work. So I had to come up with something that bridged the gap between this beautiful poetic image of hope and something that we could actually turn into a questionnaire. And Esther spoke to us about clues that knowledge is not just about, oh, I see these facts before me and I logically deduce this and now it's clear, that we're looking for clues and we're grappling with the clues to find a pattern. So well, what would you look at if you had to come up with a definition of hope? Where would you go? Other than Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so this was my question, where on earth am I gonna go? So this is where I landed, <laughs> this long list of clues found through history, which starts in Aristotle and Plato. I'm just going to read it really quickly. It runs through the Apostle Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, Descartes, Hume, Kant, Kierkegaard, Coleridge, Nietzsche. Now, those names will be familiar. Then we head into some specific hope philosophers. Um, Bloch, he was a Marxist philosopher. Marcel, Gabriel Marcel, an existentialist. Joseph Pieper, a Thomist philosopher. Sorry, you guys have lost it. Yeah, um, Rorty, an American pragmatist. 
Caputo who follows Derrida, a literary critic, Maltman who's a theologian, lots of analytic philosophers and a whole lot of psychology researchers. I was a bit inundated with clues <laughs> to work out what this was and I tried to read all of them, their original books, what they had to say about hope. So it took quite a few years actually to come up with something. But psychology has been looking at this for 50 years tops. So we really needed to go back. If humans have been looking at hope for this many years, that's where the clues are. So what is hope? Is it an emotion? Is it a mindset? Is it a motivation to action or is it a virtue? These were some of my questions. But first, let's get clear. Um, historically, all of those great people through history have said we have to differentiate between hope and fantasy or false hope. So it has to be possible or it's not hope. Uh, also, it has to be somewhat uncertain or it's just a goal. Like I don't hope to go to the gym tomorrow morning. That's a goal. Not. Well, sort of certain, <laughs> it depends how I feel. But um, it also has to be noble or grand. So you don't actually hope for chocolate. I know this is a shock, but that's more a want or a wish or a desire. Um, it has to be something big and it has to incline you to action to bring it about or it's just optimism. Optimism is a passive view. Oh no, everything's going to be fine. But is it an emotion? What do you think? I think the answer is yes. Historically, nearly all of those great philosophers would have said it's a passion. It's how they, and if you ask modern people to um, just list emotions, hope pops up. So it's, mm -hmm. yes, it's an emotion. Is it a mindset? Absolutely, it's got, which is why it's hard to pin down. It's, it's a definite thinking attitude of thought towards the future. Is it a motivation to action? Yes. <laughs> so Aquinas is really interesting. If you've ever read Thomas Aquinas, he is like reading a modern day psychologist. He's so detailed. And he says, well, for Christians, hope is a virtue, but for everyone, it's a passion, but it's a passion. And he juggles, he says, has it got cognitive components or motivational components? And he lands on motivational. He says, hope has to move you to act to bring about your hopes or it's not hope. So clearly, I think it's all three. It's an emotion, it's a mindset, it's an, about action. Is it a virtue? Here we start, um, it gets a little bit tricky. We're gonna go back in time. So some of you will know about virtues in the Greco-Roman world. Um, they privilege things like courage and temperance, prudence, justice, and virtues were things that you possessed. You were proud of your virtues. They, they could have been by just inborn merit. You were born into the right class so you could have the right virtue. But you could also train yourself up in them. Um, and interestingly, they thought they did not think hope was a virtue. They were at best ambivalent about hope. And this is because in their society, change was a bad thing. Their cosmology was cyclical. Like not even the universe didn't start at creation and expand and expand like in our worldview. It, it goes round and round. It lasts a few hundred years, the universe gets burned up and you will do exactly the same thing when, when it gets sort of reborn. They thought change within the hierarchy of society was a bad thing. So you wouldn't hope to progress. That, would, that was not on. And in fact, um, Aristotle said, imagine you're a sailor and you're in a storm but last year you were in a storm too and you got rescued. So this year you're really hopeful because hey, it happened last year. And he says, this is really bad. You do not want that hope because it's gonna get in the way of your courage. 
and courage is a far more important virtue, so we, we really don't want to hope. The Stoics, of course, didn't like hope because of its emotional component. Now, um, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about hope, and of course he does a lot, including the famous faith, hope and love, uh, he actually never uses the word virtue. Edwin Judge, um, historian of the time of Paul and Mark Strom, both point out that um, Paul actually avoids using the word virtue very studiously because faith, hope and love in what Paul's writing are not attributes someone possesses or inborn things. They are relational stances, Judge says. So Edwin Judge says that, you know, faith, you have faith because you trust someone else. You have hope because you're hoping in someone's promise. You love because someone first loves you or you see a great need in them. They're relational stances. And Mark Strom stretches it even further and says they're ways of knowing the world. Compared to the Greco-Roman view where change is bad and um, you know, we're stuck in hierarchies, to see the world, if we just pull out hope, as open to possibilities, this is a whole new way of seeing the world that Paul brings in. And he writes about it in 1 Corinthians in the context of knowledge, as Mark points out. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope and love. They're in the context of how do we know, which is um, part of why they can be seen as ways of knowing. Why do we think of them as Christian virtues today? Most people still do. Well, thank you to Augustine and Aquinas, <laughs> who swirled together, as they often did, Aristotelian and Platonic thought with Christian thought. And to be sure, they said they were virtues as a gift of God, faith, hope and love, but they were still things we sort of possessed in that slightly Greco-Roman sense, as opposed to in relationship or ways of knowing. So the question is, how do we in our society approach the world with a lens of hope? Gorgeous Lunig has this lovely cartoon with an understandoscope looking through the world. And I'm arguing that hope is experiencing the world through a certain lens. And this is, oh, oh dear. this is the lens that I'm suggesting. So this is the model that I've come up with that hope has three aspects. It's got an action aspect, a thinking aspect, and a feeling aspect. The action or agency aspect could be in God or others, or it could be in yourself. You might need to bring about what you hope for. It's also the belief that the future has meaningful possibilities. Take away a belief in possibilities and it's hard to hope. It has to have an emotional aspect driven by glimpses of what we hope for. And I got that idea from reading the Old Testament. How does God keep his people hopeful? glimpse after glimpse after glimpse. It's not the full story, it's a glimpse and it keeps us feeling hopeful. So we're gonna just go through them one by one. So firstly, agency or action. Of course, we have to be able to hope in God if we are believers. And if we're not believers, many in our society still wanna hope in something transcendent, even if we're not gonna say the Christian God. But for Christians, of course, we have our ultimate hope cosmic restoration. What does your capacity for goal attainment, how on earth has that got anything to do with God bringing about the restoration of the cosmos? Nothing. We are hoping in God. And in faith is when we are sure of what we hope for. Um, it gives us the confidence that what God has promised will happen. 
Prayer is the other way, of course, that we put our hopes in God, especially in our more everyday hopes. And I often ask my clients what they pray for in sessions because it really reveals what you hope for. And it's not surprising because hope and prayer are entwined. In Romans 8, it says, For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it goes straight on to prayer. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. It's beautiful, isn't it? We're, we're um, waiting patiently, hoping, and we're praying because this is just what comes out. And often we're back to Polanyi's, we know more than we can tell. We're hoping, we can't put it into words and praise God that the Spirit of God translates it into the specifics because we don't know what to pray for. What about for the many people in our society who would call themselves spiritual but not religious? So Gabriel Marcel um, wrote this beautiful piece and this really resonates with Esther Meek's idea that the, re the real at the centre of the universe of the cosmos is a person, is personal. And Marcel says to hope against all hope. So he's not a believer in the traditional sense. He's an existentialist. To hope against all hope that the person whom I love will recover from an illness which is considered to be incurable is to say it is not possible that I am alone in willing her recovery. It is impossible that reality at its very depths is hostile or only indifferent to what I declare to be a good in itself. Beyond all probabilities, all statistics, I affirm that a certain order will be re-established, that reality is with me in willing that it be so. I think so many people in our society still have this sense there's this benevolent personhood somewhere in the universe. As believers, we're gonna say this is God, but this still resonates with people strongly. Sometimes the agency isn't God, of course. Sometimes in our everyday hopes, it's about not just hoping in yourself, but in a collective, in a group. You hope in your family, your workplace team, your church. And I did some research a few years ago and I asked people, how many relationships do you have in which you feel you belong? I wonder what you'd say. How many that you feel you really belong? And there was pretty much a straight line correlation with how hopeful people were. And that was for two reasons when we did the path analysis. One was they thought, if I really belong, they're going to help me bring about my hopes, this idea of a collective. And second, belonging correlates highly with feeling life is meaningful, which is also linked to hope. But for, for the point of this um, section, that belonging to a group matters to hope. But sometimes you have to just hope in another person like your surgeon, and that's just the reality of life. So I think a model of hope has to include that hoping in others. But what about if it's you that has to bring about your hope? So what does that look like? We've already touched on this idea of waiting. So I'm arguing that our agency is your capacity to cope while you're waiting in the present, but you're being poised to act. Now, I love fishing. I last went fishing up in Darwin. I went barramundi fishing just before COVID. There was a lot of being poised to act. <laughs> not much actual action happening for me. But it's the best example. You're waiting, aren't you? But it's not passive waiting when you're fishing. You're, you're really ready when the time is right to act. And again, that Romans 8, if we hope for what we don't have, we wait for it. And the better translation is with patient endurance. 
Or 1 Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. This is this, I'm, 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 I've got this tense expectation. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. In fact, the Hebrew words for hope both pretty much mean wait. Wait on the Lord. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Wait on God, for I will yet praise him. There's the not yet, my Saviour and my God from Psalm 42. So hope is in the waiting. And this is most beautifully put by T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets. Some of you will um, know this poem. And he's writing at the beginning of World War II. And it starts off with, um, oh, dark, dark, dark. He's feeling like life is so bleak and there's men going off and being killed. And he said, no bodies in a funeral because there's no bodies to bury. Like, it's just bleak. And then he thinks, well, where is hope? And this is what he says. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. We're back to this idea. We, we, we're propelled. We're yearning to have faith and love and hope. But often we just don't know what exactly we're to hope for. And I think he expresses the waiting beautifully. Tertullian said back in the third century, hope is patience with the lamplit. Same idea, remind you of the 10 bridesmaids, you know, in Jesus' story in Matthew 25, and they've all got their lamps lit. Um, so we must wait for our hopes. And I wonder if you've ever thought of the waiting as part of the hoping. It's not that you're not hoping when you're waiting. We have to actually see, have eyes to see the waiting as part of the hoping. But it's not just that we must wait for our hopes. The true gift of reality is that God awaits us. This is from Jürgen Moltmann. You're going to hear a lot from Jürgen Moltmann for the rest of this because he's, his thinking about hope resonates a lot with Esther's. The ultimate reason for our hope is not to be found at all in what we want, wish for and wait for. The ultimate reason is we are wanted and wished for and waited for. Does anything await us at all or are we alone? Whenever we base our hope on trust in the divine mystery, we feel deep down in our hearts there is someone who is waiting for you, who is hoping for you, who believes in you. We are waited for as the prodigal son in the parable is waited for by his father. We are accepted and received as a mother takes her children into her arms and comforts them. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And it's that idea, as Esther talked about, that yes, we invite the real. As we try to know the world, we invite the real and the personal, but the real invites us. God invites us. Um, so this is this beautiful reality of Christian waiting in hope, but the reality is you and I in our everyday hope still have to work out how to wait the best. And as part of my research, I asked people, if you could do anything to make yourself more hopeful, what would you do? So there's hundreds upon hundreds of people and they all gave their answers, it was free flowing. And then I had this horrible job of coding them all, <laughs> working out what category they fell in. And basically a fifth of people said these five responses. There's no statistical difference in those numbers. Some said they'd do a spiritual activity, like they'd pray or they'd read a scripture. 
um, whether whatever holy book that was. Some said, oh, I'd go for a run or I'd knit. They'd do activities, which at first did my head in a bit. Some said I'd talk to a supportive person. Some said I would imagine what I hoped for. Some said, oh, well, I'd plan what I can do to bring about the hoped for goal. And the interesting thing about that is a lot of them are about coping in the waiting. So the heading here is coping is part of hoping. So including embodied coping. So if people say, well, I go for a run to, to make myself hopeful. Well, yeah, because you're coping. <laughs> Going for a run helps you cope in the meantime or talking to a supportive person. I, I have clients who, are, you know, they've had a terminal diagnosis or they've had something horrific happen to a child or they've gone bankrupt and they, they've lost that sense of hope. And for them, even just having eyes to see, doing what you can to cope in the waiting is an expression of your hope. It gives people agency and it is part of hope. It's a beautiful part of hope, including the embodied part of coping. And it reminds me of Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope because persevering hope tolerates the pain now and hopeful perseverance looks for when you can be active but that coping and that persevering is part of hoping and sometimes that's all you've got the waiting and the coping and and to see that as it's not that I've lost hope so all I'm doing is coping it's part of it what would you say is the opposite of hope if you had to pick um, people have come up with all sorts of things and um, often people put out fear but actually fear and hope are sort of the flip side of the same coin aren't they because it's uncertain. Seneca said that fear and hope are chained together like a prisoner and a guard, <laughs> they're always together. So despair is the opposite of hope certainly, that we think that what we hope for will never be attained, that there's this certainty it will not happen. It's a miserable place to be. But there's another opposite of hope, which is presumption, where you think, nope, what I'm hoping for, I already have it, it already will be. So I have had over the time clients who have had the terminal diagnosis, and especially Christians who are in a theology of prosperity, gospel, or that sort of thing, and they have declared they are healed. And they think that's part of their hope, but it's actually a presumption. They, they, um, are not willing to sit in the uncertainty and it's really hard to sit on the uncertainty. They want to believe they've already attained it. And, and I'm sympathetic to that, but it's not a helpful place to be, neither despair nor presumption. Because they want certainty versus being pilgrims on the way. So historically, when you look at that sweep of writers through history, they've often talked about humans that were in this statue via Taurus. We are pilgrims on the way. And there's an uncertainty in that. We don't exactly know the end. <laughs> we're in the middle. I'll give you another beautiful Maltman quote. He says, in dis and, and he's picking up despair and presumption being opposites from Augustine, Aquinas, a whole lot of others who've also said this. In despair and presumption alike, we have the rigidifying and freezing of the truly human element, which hope alone can keep flowing and free. This hope keeps man unreconciled until the great day of the fulfillment of all the promises of God. 
It keeps him in stud dubiatoris, meaning pilgrim on the way, in that unresolved openness to world questions. Now he sounds like Esther. Which has its origin in the promise of God in the resurrection of Christ and can therefore be resolved only when the same God fulfills his promise. It takes a lot of emotional maturity to sit in the unresolvedness of hope, doesn't it? The not yetness and not flip either way, not flip to no, it'll never happen. It's safer to just think it'll never happen or no, I'm gonna claim it now and believe that it's gonna definitely gonna happen. It's hard to sit in the not yet, in the tension of the not yet, but that is the place of hope. I'm gonna give you a little worked example now of, um, of how I use some of Esther's ideas in a session with a client. So hopefully you can see, oh no, you can't see. Okay, there's, <laughs> there is an image here of a cyclist on a bicycle going up a pretty impossible hill that is really just a giant boulder, which looked terrifying to me. Uh, we've just been cycling in Rottnest Island off Perth and going up the hills was not, well, not much fun. Um, so, so Esther talked about a thing called subsidiary focal integration, which is an absolute mouthful. <laughs> Basically her best, I thought the example she used that explained it best was it's like riding a bike. When you first ride a bike, you know, you, you don't know how to do it, you learn a little bit, but mostly you learn to ride by just getting on. And once you're riding a bike, you don't even think about it. You don't think about moving the pedals or balancing, it's just, so she, following Polanyi, calls this subsidiary knowledge, it's embodied, and now you're riding around in the world and you're moving forward, you're looking out, you're looking up from your subsidiary knowledge of how to ride a bike. And sometimes you focus on this, sometimes you focus on that, but your focus is from the subsidiary. And I've been using this with a certain type of clients. And these are ones who are perfectionists, who have become burnt out in their workplace and slid into despair. It's a not uncommon scenario. Um, a lot because I work with a lot of ministers who <laughs> seem to have this thing going, but equally it could be teachers or lawyers or, or parents, it could be any part of um, life. And so what happens, like I'll use an example of a minister I saw just a few weeks ago. He's been a minister for years. He knows how to do his job. It's like riding a bike. It's deep, it's embodied, it's subsidiary. But he wasn't, a whole lot of stressors happened in his world, in his life, and now he's riding a bike uphill and the hill's getting steeper and steeper as the stressors come. Um, and as you can imagine from this guy on the boulder, and as I was on Rottnest, you know there's a point on a hill and you have to stand up, well I do, I have to stand up in the seat and push down on the pedal and now you're looking at the pedal and now you're looking at the handlebars and you're going, oh my gosh, do I even really know how to ride a bike? I'm not sure what to do with my legs. And Polanyi calls this destructive analysis. And in the sake of this minister, it's a turning inward and now he's analysing his thoughts do I even know how to do this? What if I don't know how to do this? Um, and of course, eventually he starts to fall off the bike. And at this point, people have an aha moment. Esther also talks about this and go, hmm, this is not working for me, this destructive analysis. If they're a perfectionist, the destructive analysis, the thinking's going to be really harsh on themselves, really self-critical. Um, and if they're burnt out, part of burnout is you think you can't do this thing anymore at all. 
And so people just really collapse and have lost their confidence. And what I said to him was, it's okay. Your knowledge of bike riding, of your role, is deep inside you. It's embodied knowledge. All that's happened is you've turned inward and you're now stuck on, fixated on these little, little aspects of your thinking. And our job, you've come to me, Esther calls it authoritative guides, but really all a good therapist does is ask the right questions. Um, and we're gonna have to rethink how can you get your focus off those things and onto cycling along, doing your job, it's back to subsidiary, you're moving forward, looking up and out. And um, often I, you know, it's, it's the thinking aspect which we deal with first. And I was thinking about Esther's idea that all knowledge is deeply personal at the end of the day. And what I do with a client like that is I say, so what you're saying to yourself in your head is, I am terrible, I cannot do this, I'll never be able to do this again, I'll have to leave and I was never good at it anyway. And often parents say this about their parenting and overloaded with guilt. Um, and then I say, so would you say that to a friend? It's a common thing that we do to help people, isn't it? Like, and they say, oh gosh, no, I wouldn't speak that harshly to a friend. I would be compassionate and I'd find something good they did and I'd talk about possibilities. So how we speak to ourselves needs to be how we would speak to another person. And that's so we're going to sort of correct while we're in this analysis phase. Um, and it's a funny idea though, isn't it? Not coming to know ourselves as we would another person. And Esther and Polanyi would say, that's how we know the whole world actually. We'd also check in on their, the clues from their embodiment. Like normally people are physically exhausted. <laughs> they've got all sorts of physical issues going on that are clues that this is not working for them. And I also work to try to make the difficult feelings subsidiary. So what that means is, you know, life is full of sadness and fear and struggle and guilt and if that gets fixated on, so I have clients who will say, I'm sad, I can't stand being sad, I don't want to be sad, or I'm scared about their future, and I can't. And the more they fixate, the worse it gets, as opposed to our emotions being accepted and becoming subsidiary. Yes, in a fallen world, we, every human is grappling with difficult feelings, and, and we can't focus too much on them. Sure, we have to accept them and validate, but we have to move on and look out and up and work out a way, and a lot of therapy is a way to manage feelings so they're not the focus. So that was part one. It was by far the longest part, don't worry. Um, and <laughs> we are now moving on to part two, a belief in a future of meaningful possibilities. And I think this is essential for hope. Traditionally, when you think of all the philosophers, they would say humans hope for happiness rather than meaningful. But in our society, I think happiness has become a little sort of superficial in what we mean by it. And at the time I was coming up with this, I'd just read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, How Do You Find Hope in a Concentration Camp? And the palliative care literature has a lot to say about hope. And meaningful can cover hope even while you're dying and for people around someone dying. So I stuck with meaningful, but we have a lot of challenges to being able to think of possibilities. So the first one is stress or anxiety. You're probably familiar with this idea that in your frontal lobe here, live all your big picture possibility thinking. Your amygdala at the back gets activated when you're stressed 
and there's a feedback loop, it shuts down your possibility thinking, which is great if you're in a survival situation. You know, you've been, it's a dark alley, you're alone, you're being chased by people. You want to do like, oh my gosh, is that side alley a blind alley? What if there's more than one person? What if they've got guns? Like you want to narrow to worst case scenarios. But for most of life, that's really unhelpful. We lose big possibilities. And we're back to hoping is coping. The better you cope with your stress and anxiety, the more hope you'll have because the more you'll be able to have, think about good possibilities. What I seem to think this has happened at a societal level. Our societal prefrontal cortex has shut down somewhat. <laughs> we are operating out of stress and anxiety and hope is somewhat diminishing. Um, you know, we're in a world of pandemics and Ukraine wars and Trump is back and <laughs> climate issues and because of social media and our screens it's in front of us all the time it's no wonder our amygdala is in this constant state of slight activation and I asked people in um, my last round of research this was at the end of 2020 what is your realistic best hope for humanity and the over 45 said oh no, it's fine. Humans are going to flourish into many generations. And the under 25 said, my best hope is that things don't get worse. Now, is that hope? Where are the possibilities? Like, there's nothing to aim for. There's, it's it's self-protection. It's survival. It's just, no, keep it as it is. It just, it just can't get any worse. Um, it, it's really problematic. And this is a cartoon by a lunic an Australian cartoonist, where the adult says, so what do you hear in the seashell to the, I don't know, early teenage boy? And he says, I hear the sea level rising. I hear bluefin tuna being hunted. I hear boat people crying. I hear villages being swept away. I want my iPod back. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an example of unhealthy coping, by the way, distracting <laughs> on an iPod. But it's a problem, isn't it, with um, levels of hope young people it's it's really significant 2021 research on 10,000 young people across 10 countries 75% said the future is frightening about 60% it makes them anxious sad angry and hopeless and 65% governments are failing us which is an example of that collective agency is a worry when they're not bringing about your hopes but all is not lost here is my hopeful slide <laughs> I also asked people how much do you put your trust in the following for the future of humanity? So these are the same people. There's quite a lot of people, it's many hundreds. Do you put it in government, those with money or power, science, artificial intelligence, God or a higher power, collective action, the belief that good will conquer evil, the belief that things happen for a reason, evolution, inherited wisdom and traditions, the younger generation or the older generation? Now, what do you think was the most common answer? What do people put their trust in? It was actually science, not surprising in a way, but the really fascinating thing is that didn't correlate with hopefulness. Science is a mixed bag, isn't it? <laughs> um, the only three that correlated with hopefulness were belief in God or a higher power, which is nice, but the only other two, so that sort of covered all the people with a religious perspective or a spiritual perspective, but. The only other two that correlated with hope were the belief that good will conquer evil and the belief that things happen for a reason. 
These are like secular eschatologies. These are the end of a story. Good will conquer evil. It's all going to make sense in the end. Now, you could say, well, our society lives and breathes the air of the Christian story. You could say God's put eternity in their hearts. You could say it's just intrinsic in man to make meaning by stories. And there's been a lot of psychological research, a lot of reflection by all sorts of people on that idea, which is true. We do tend to create narratives. People who create healthy narratives for themselves, past, present and have an ending, tend to cope the best in life according to Dan McAdams' research and Roy Baumeister's research. I've personally found this really encouraging because it's a belief that's out there in our society by people who aren't necessarily Christian or religious in any way. But can't we springboard from that? If there's a, they can't articulate why, but there's a belief good will conquer. Um, it's like, you know, Paul sees the altar to the unknown God and he springboards from it. We can springboard from this and talk about the sense of the ending that people have for their lives, confident that for a big chunk of them, it's going to resonate with our Christian story and we can give a reason. Good will conquer evil because Jesus has done this in his death and resurrection. Things happen for a reason because there is a person <laughs> behind the universe making this make sense. So let's just dig into this. Eyes to see that meaning is in a narrative. These two handsome gentlemen from the 1960s are Ernst Bloch and Jürgen Moltmann. Now Ernst Bloch is a Marxist philosopher and he wrote the thickest book on hope that I've read called Principle of Hope. It's three volumes. It's really enormous and being German, uh, a lot of it, and being German, the sentence has gone forever and it's really hard to read. I didn't read it in German, I read it in English but even the translations do that. Um, so he wrote The Principle of Hope and he believed as a Marxist, we create the future, we create the ending from the building blocks in the present. He talks a lot about the imagination and culture, it's a rich read. And his language is the future of the real possible is latent in the not yet being and the not yet conscious. But his, the point of it is the building blocks of the future, time is going from the present to an ending and of course he hopes it's a Marxist classless utopia. Now he had a holiday house in the Alps somewhere he's a German so I don't know if it's Switzerland or Germany and in a house very nearby also having a holiday was Jürgen Moltmann who's very famous we've already talked about him theologian and he read Ernst's work because you sort of have to if you're both academics holidaying in the same area and he went, oh my goodness, what does Christianity have to say about hope? So in 1964, he produced his German edition of A Theology of Hope, and he said, Bloch's got it wrong, and Bloch's got it wrong. It's not for the Christian, well, maybe he's got it right for Marxist, but for a Christian, time goes in the opposite direction. He said, the future is latent in God's promises for the new, and the future transforms our present as time flows backwards. And he says, we don't just believe in the facts of Jesus' past death and resurrection and future coming, which would be Esther's knowledge as information, like we just believe facts. He says, we participate in this amazing, weird thing that happens with time when you become a Christian. He says, we indwell God's story. 
So we are united with Christ in his death in the past, as it says in Romans 6, and his resurrection. And we participate now in the new things God has planned. There's this, we, I tried to read his essay on time and it, I, <laughs> it's above my pay grade as a theologian or philosopher, but there's lots of ideas of time collapsing on itself and we're participating in God's aeonic time, even though we're in chronological time. So there's something quite mystical that happens about the future that pulls backwards into the present. So how does this impact us in the present? This is what Jürgen says. I hope he doesn't mind me being on first name terms with him, but I, he, I have conversations with him in my head all the time because I read a lot of his work. Does hope cheat man of the happiness of the present? And people, we're encouraged to do lots of mindfulness today, aren't we? Like be in the present, be in the present moment. The whole Buddha, the premise of Buddhism is it's all about being in the present. And if you think too much about the future, you'll miss the good of the present. And he says, no, no, how could it do so? It is itself the happiness of the present. Hope pronounces the poor blessed. It receives the weary and heavy laden, the humbled and wronged, the hungry and the dying, because it perceives the parousia of the kingdom for them. Thus hope goes on its way through the midst of happiness and pain, because in the promises of God, it can see a future also for the transient, the dying, and even the dead. So he's arguing that that future hope has to instill our present, whether it's good or a not good present. And this, I'm really excited to share this next quote from Maltman because I've been too scared to share it at any other place. <laughs> I often give talks in um, churches and Christian schools and the like, and you have to be careful because I think in this one, he really comes out as a universalist if you think long and hard about it. And often people will just dismiss everything else he says when they find that out, which I think is a real shame. There's a more an openness here to, to that. So <clears throat> there's a picture here that hopefully you can see, which is a very famous um, painting done in the 1920s. And it's an angel with big goggly eyes and its wings outstretched. And it's by an um, artist called Paul Clay. And the idea is he's the angel of history. Another famous philosopher called Walter Benjamin um, has said that this angel of history is being pushed backwards by progress and it's staring at all the tragedies that have happened through history. And it's just, there's wreckage being piled upon piled and, and it's the body count. It's this generation dies and this generation dies and this generation dies. And the only use they have is as building blocks for the next generation. That's it. And this angel of history is being pushed backwards by progress and the only point of any human is a building block for the next generation. But Maltman says, no, Christian hope, speaking about this painting, Christian hope for the future is at its heart a hope for resurrection. Without hope for the past, there is no hope for the future. For what will be will pass away, what is born will die, what is not yet will one day be no longer. It's weird, our great-grandchildren who are not yet born will one day be the dead of history. Do we have hope for them? Are they just building blocks? Are we just building blocks? And he says, on that day when we meet with Christ and history is bound up, whatever happens to it, among the dead who will come to meet us will be the fallen, the gassed, the murdered, the disappeared, the dead of Verdun, of Auschwitz, of Stalingrad and Hiroshima, they await us. He assumes they will all be there. We could add the massacred Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. He's writing in Germany after the war. 
whatever nation we're in, we can add the tragedies of history, but they will be there to meet us. And only the person who remembers them can look this future in the face, the future called the raising of the dead. Only the person who looks into the future is really able to remember those who have gone and live in their presence. The resurrection hope sees a future for those who are gone. So those who are living, which is us, in the present, gain courage for the future because of a great hope of overcoming death and transience. Our little hopes for future better times gain strength and do not fall victim to resignation and cynicism. Our limited human hopes for those to come become a reaction to the divine future for those who have gone. You can see how time gets compressed as believers, we hope for the past. We don't just hope for ourselves or the future. It, it all gets encapsulated. The first time I read that, I just burst into tears. And I thought, when can I give, when can I share it? And I'm so excited to finally be able to share it. Um, Maltman says, he believes hell will, he believes in the justice of God, that, but that hell will be empty. And he says, um, True hope must be universal because its healing future embraces every individual and the whole universe. And if we were to surrender hope for as much as one single creature, God would not be God. That was what he thought. So we're going to move on to the last bit. We've looked at agency. We've looked at possibilities. This is the shortest bit. Glimpses which create feelings of hope. So I got this idea from reading the Old Testament and then happily I went to the psychological literature and it is abounding. And I thought, woohoo, I can use this. So if you imagine your hoped for future, just a glimpse of it, it activates your emotional neuronal circuitry in your brain so you feel hopeful and motivated to act. So imagine a holiday. Now, but let's just say you don't know if you can get time off work and you don't know if you can afford it. Like it's going to be a gorgeous holiday in Mauritius. You're lying on the sand, you've got your brook, it's warm, the water's crystal clear. Now, you are feeling a little bit probably of the joy or the relaxation that will happen when you just imagine the glimpse of that holiday. You don't need the whole itinerary. And we, all we need is a glimpse of that. And actually, anticipating the future leads to a more intense emotional response in your brain than remembering the past. So if you've been to Mauritius in the past and you've sat on the beach or wherever you just were on the beach, <laughs> imagining the future actually on an fMRI activates the emotional circuitry in your brain more. God's designed us like this. There's something about that future pulling backwards that makes us feel a bit of that happy emotion and um, motivates us to act. We just need a taste. And sometimes we need things to trigger the imagination. It could be seeing something, tasting, smelling, touching, experiencing. This is an embodied form of knowing. Um, the psychological theory is pragmatic prospection theory. Um, I, I often give this talk and I often go into more detail about the neuroscience of this. And what I notice is as soon as I start talking neuroscience, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, you can see in people's faces, now we've got to the real bit. Now we've got to the truth. This is the knowing as information, Esther's epistemic default. Um, we've got to the science. And it's really problematic. A few months ago, I was giving a talk on um, toxic masculinity, of all things, with some theologians. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at the neuroscience of gender differences in the brain. And what you find is there's a bucket of neuroscience here which says 
They're exactly the same for all intents and purposes. And then there's a whole bunch of neuroscience over here which says, no, no, they're really different. All of them have small sample sizes. They're using really expensive machines. They're culturally specified. Like, neuroscience is in such an infancy that there's only certain areas that we've really got enough data to say anything. The brain is so complex. It really bugs me. Often psychology tries to gain a whole lot of credibility because of our society's default by, I'm going to latch it onto neuroscience. Not saying it has nothing to say, it does, but it's one piece of information and it's in its early stages. Psychologists often refer to physiology. There's a famous paper in 2005 where two researchers were trying to work out the right ratio of positive to negative interactions in a relationship like should you have 11 positive to one negative or five positive and to try and make it seem more credible they used a mathematical model of water flow to apply just because surely people will listen to it then of course it got it all came out these were big researchers and it was an, a good caution to psychologists to not slide into that knowledge is just information like all the, the subjective experience of people is valid in itself. We don't need to say gratitude improves your immune system. It does, but that's not why it's good. <laughs> There's all sorts of other reasons. Sorry, you're, I was on a rant there. Um, back to this, more than a sense of an ending. Do you read the end of a mystery novel first? Yes, interesting. A lot of people say no. You, researchers at the University of California have found that people who do this enjoy their novels more, or at least read it a second time. <laughs> oh, we've got controversy here. <laughs> this is because when they interviewed people, they said, you know what clues to look for. All the subtle clues who, who did the deed are hidden. <laughs> and you can just read it twice, Simon. <laughs> and you can find the clues. So what are the clues the Bible gives us about our ultimate hope? Esther says clues orient us towards a reality which testifies to implications we cannot yet name and yet transformatively shapes us in the present. There's this thing in the future we can't quite put our finger on but it shapes us. The thing that made me think of this was going through images of the temple in the Old Testament that God generously gives us layers of clues and glimpses, like this idea of the temple of heaven and earth or God and humans meeting. It starts in the Garden of Eden. John Walton's pointed this out, the temple imagery. What about the tabernacle? All the detail. Why does God give us all this detail about a tent in the desert? Or the temple? Gosh, the colours, the textures, the statues, these are all providing imaginative glimpses for us. They're triggering that part of our imagination that's going to make us feel hopeful. It's a, it's a um, shadow and an echo of what is to come, it says in Hebrews. Jesus, now we have a person who is God and human, who's exploding the idea of temple. Um, and he's using all these parables and object lessons and miracles to just give us clues and glimpses as to what the ultimate um, new creation will be. We are God's temple if the spirit lives in us. And ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth, a whole world of vast glory-filled temple where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I sort of springboarded from that idea thinking, man, you, we, I don't know what the new creation is going to be like exactly, but gosh, I've got lots of hints and lots of clues there. What about in our everyday? This is something I use with clients who are going through terrible times. My daughter gave me this 
mug. Where there is tea, there is hope. <laughs> so let's say you don't know exactly what you're hoping for or it's very unknown um, in an everyday hope rather than a whole cosmic redemption hope. When you're stressed, you sit down and you relax with a cup of tea. Isn't that a resonance of the rest of the new creation? What if we had eyes to see? What if we come to know the world through drinking a cup of tea and it propels us into the rest of heaven? Or more accurately, the rest of heaven pulls backwards into that moment. In the midst of sickness, a day of feeling well, the healing of the new creation pulls backwards. Seeing a dear friend after a long absence, what if you see that as part of hope? This is the joy of the new creation. In a time of grief, a friend who sits with you, a reminder of love, that day will be enveloped and indwell with love. When life feels ugly, a sunrise astounds you, the beauty comes backwards. You create a garden, a piece of writing, artwork, and you're expressing your creativity that one day will be fully in, in, enveloped in the new creation. A difficult talk which reconciles differences is about peace. You get the idea. <laughs> so when people are going through really, really difficult times, hope is a way of knowing, as having eyes to see in all the little sacred glimpses that we get in everyday life, the character of God and his kingdom, and therefore what Esther would call the real. I, I'm finishing, there's only a couple more slides. The Lunig, classic Lunig poem, with a man drinking a cup of tea and a bird on his head, of course. You have to wait for the gleam to start. Patience will not hurt you. Glimmer seeks a weary heart. Sadness is a virtue. A cup of tea has been your prayer. And then without a warning, a tiny sacred speck is there, gleaming in the morning. The simple glimmer has arrived. Life has found a way. All that matters has survived and love has saved the day. So having eyes to see hope in a cup of tea <laughs> is the future pulling backwards in one sense. Last two slides. It's not just having eyes to see hope, it's choosing to be the glimpses of hope. This is Tom Wright. We've finally broken out of, of Jürgen Moltmann. There is a strong incentive to work in the present, to anticipate the new world in every possible way. Those who are grasped by the vision of God's new world unveiled in Jesus' resurrection, we are already sharing in that newness. And we are called to produce in the present time more and more signposts to point to this eventual and glorious future. We are to be the glimpses of hope for our world. You think about those under 25s. My best hope is that it's not going to get any worse than this. There's no glimpses of hope there. So Wright continues, I'm putting up a signpost. I'm not offering a photograph of what will be, what we'll find once we get to where the signpost is pointing. I don't know how the painting an artist paints today in prayer and wisdom will find a place in God's new world. I don't know how our work for justice, for the poor, for remission of global debts will reappear in that new world. But I know that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole earth, was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. And I know he calls his followers to live in him and by the power of his spirit. And so to be the new creation people here and now bringing signs and symbols of the kingdom to birth on earth as it is in heaven. So choosing to be is putting out the recycling. It's helping refugees. It's, you know, think about all those things. It's, it's being loving when it's the most difficult thing to do. It's being the first person to ask for forgiveness. There's so many ways we can be the glimpses and we're the sacred glimpses because that heaven is pulling backwards. So the summary, 
this is what we've looked at. At Hope's agency is often relational. We come to know reality best when we see it as interpersonal. That waiting and coping are part of hope, they're expressions of hope. While we wait for the full pattern to be revealed, whether it's an everyday hope or the big hope, there is a God who waits for us at the end. To catch it when despair or presumption as destructive analysis freezes our unresolved openness and being pilgrims. We've looked at experiencing the clues of our big picture hope of cosmic redemption that are all around and pausing, having eyes to see and receive that gift and being the glimpses and signposts of our hope in the new creation now. So we're poised and we're ready to act, to transform the world. Sounds a lot like Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So that was a lot and you got the Christian version. It actually translates really well to a secular questionnaire. It's just open-ended enough that anyone can do it. It will be published in secular literature. All the stats have gone really well. So as a questionnaire, it works. Other people are keen to use it as an alternative hope scale and hope measure. Did all the right things, correlated with all the right things. So that's the next, the next step in this. But it really sprung out of the scaffolding of of a Christian framework because God is the one who knows hope. He would know how to do it. And my thanks to Tony and Mark and Esther along many, many, many years, um, certainly for Tony and Mark, they've been supporting me and um, Esther for her ideas of how to integrate. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. That was really long. <laughs>